50 years ago this week, the New York Times published excerpts from the Pentagon Papers, 7,000 pages of top secret documents. These documents proved that the government of the United States had been lying to the people of this country for decades about the war in Vietnam. Eventually, the United States left Vietnam, but not before millions of Vietnamese people died. 58,000 U.S. troops were also killed, with hundreds of thousands more suffering from physical and psychological injuries. Today, we talk with whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, who, along with Anthony Russo, was responsible for smuggling these secret documents from government offices and releasing them to the public. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to the Real Story segment of the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We are joined today by Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel is one of the most important and most well-known whistleblowers in modern American history. He is the author of The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Daniel Ellsberg is also the author of Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. Daniel Ellsberg, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining. I know, as I mentioned earlier, you have to be exhausted. This is the 50th <laughs> anniversary of the release of the Pentagon Papers, something that really changed America, helped contribute to the demise of the Nixon administration. It's just an amazing story. There's so many twists and turns. And as I had mentioned to you, a great number of our listeners are younger people. They're people who are under the age of 35. That would be 85% of our listeners. And most of them are under the age of 25. I want to read for them a little passage from a special edition of the New York Times that came out this weekend called The Pentagon Papers at 50 in order to frame this discussion. And then I'm going to ask you a little bit more about what happened. Here it is. On October 1st, 1969, Daniel Ellsberg walked out of the Rand Corporation offices where he worked as a Defense Department consultant into the temperate evening air of Santa Monica, California. In his briefcase was part of a classified government study that chronicled 22 years of failed United States involvement in Vietnam. By then, the war had killed about 45,000 Americans and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese. He had been posted in Vietnam and even worked on the study he now carried. Having become convinced that the war was not only unwinnable, but also a crime, he was now determined to stop it. Over the course of the next eight months, he spent many nights photocopying the rest of the study in secret. That's only a little bit of the story. That's kind of like the high point of the story in a way, maybe not even the high point, because talk about, if you would, Daniel Ellsberg, how you became involved in Vietnam, when you went to Vietnam, 
what the Pentagon Papers were and why you knew that they were filled with or demonstrated that the government had been lying to the people of this country. Well, I'd been working for the government as a, an employee from August 4th, 1964, having been a consultant for about five years, six years before that at the Rand Corporation and working partly in the Pentagon as a consultant on nuclear war plans to a large extent. But when I came in in 64, it was to work on Vietnam as the special assistant to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, whose job was mostly to manage Vietnam for the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, but who wanted me to spend nearly all my time for him on that question. And by coincidence, fairly significant in retrospect, I came in that day, two days after there had been a daylight attack on an American destroyer in the Gulf of Tonkin, just off the shores of North Vietnam. And when I came in on August 4th, Reports were just coming in of a flash nature as I got into the office, meaning that they were very of the highest priority, had to be delivered within 10 minutes to the recipient of having been sent. That two destroyers now, in dark night, 12 hours time difference in the Tonkin Gulf, were again being attacked, and despite the warnings by the President Johnson that any further attack would be met with a harsh retaliation. And so as I came in, actually plans for retaliating were always also underway. The point of telling this is that by late that evening, and especially the next day or two, I already knew that the public was being lied to by the President Johnson and by my boss, Secretary McNamara, not my immediate boss, John McNaughton, but we were spending all that night actually following the raids that Johnson had ordered as a result of his supposed attack, despite the fact that we knew by that time that planes got off, that it was very dubious as to whether the attack had actually occurred in the night, in the darkness, whether there actually had been patrol boats out there sending torpedoes. Now, within a few days, the evidence piled up and it was very clear there had been no attack. But that didn't stop the president from going to Congress to get through what amounted to a blank check for war, an undated declaration of war from Congress, supposedly, as Congress was told, simply to back his retaliation to this supposed attack. And that's what they thought they were signing. And in fact, they were assured by the president's representatives that he would not escalate the war further without coming back to Congress. That, too, was a lie. He had no intention of coming back to Congress for any further authorization, and he didn't come back or get it. So the war was really undertaken under totally false pretenses right from the beginning. And after I'd been in Vietnam, where I went the next year to be in what was now an ongoing, fairly live war with uh, American troops pouring in and American bombers bombing North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And I, having been in the Marines for three years, I felt that I wanted to be closer to the scene of the action to see whether we were getting false reporting on it in back. And that was true. We had been getting false reporting, but we'd also been getting true reporting. And what it turned out was that the president had been told adequately year after year that there were really no prospects for progress from what he was doing or what he was prepared to do. 
Many people often describe the Pentagon Papers, which were a history of the decision-making, as revealing that we'd always known there was no way to win the war. Well, in my judgment, there wasn't. But that's not really what the president was being told. The Joint Chiefs of Staff, the military, were telling him continuously that the war was winnable and should be won if only he would do what they wanted, which was to send at least 500,000 troops and possibly a million and to hit every target in North Vietnam up to the Chinese borders and preferably all at once, essentially taking a great risk that the Chinese themselves would come in and defense across the border and we would be at war with China. So the Pentagon Papers then showed that the Joint Chiefs regarded the war as winnable. The president didn't believe that, and I think rightly so. But the question then was, well, what should he do if he wasn't willing to do what they said would be necessary to win? And what each president chose to do was enough to keep the Joint Chiefs from resigning and giving Congress their version of the escalated war that they wanted. In other words, had he done so and had Congress followed that, the war would have been very much bigger and very much more murderous than it actually was, which was enough. It went on essentially from 11 years after I came there that on August 4th, and we dropped four times as much tonnage of bombs as the United States dropped in all of World War II in Europe and Asia. That last was two million tons. We dropped uh, more than 8 million tons in Indochina. So four and more World War Twos, four World War Twos roughly. No success, essentially. Nothing to show for it at the end. It was a misguided and misconducted war to a very large extent. But at any rate, I said I did go to Vietnam once the bombing had started and the troops were going in. I'd opposed the bombing, actually, but helped McNamara carry it out because McNamara wanted it for reasons that still remain somewhat obscure in terms of his expectations. I went over there. I saw the war up close using my past Marine experience as a rifle platoon leader and infantry company commander in a peacetime in the 50s to walk up close with troops and see the war up close. And that made it very clear to me. I walked in visited at least 38 of the 43 provinces in Vietnam. I saw more of it than most people and drove the roads a great deal, which was unusual, and concluded that there was no chance of any success of any kind with what we were actually doing. And that was at a time when I was a strong cold warrior and certainly would have welcomed any indication that we could beat the communists for once in this place. But it was very clear to me confirmed an earlier view I had about Vietnam from a visit in 1961 for the Defense Department. But my experience over there confirmed that first view that there was no prospect that we were supporting a very unpopular dictatorial government that had essentially no legitimacy at all ever in South Vietnam, fighting against people who were led by the people who had earned the cachet of having defeated the French occupiers of their country who had held it as a colony who were nationalists, wanted to unify the country, which most Vietnamese regarded as an admirable and legitimate goal, a nationalistic goal, which we were opposing, even though most of them probably would not have had a communist leadership as their highest preference compared to various sects there or the Buddhists 
or people who were regarded as more nationalist. But nevertheless, they were not interested in fighting a war against the communist-led independence movement that had defeated the French. So we were pretty well doomed to no success. We could have done better than we did in various ways, but nothing would have succeeded in making the other side give up their efforts to unify the country and free it of foreign control. Let me ask you a quick question, because what you're raising is so, so important. The perplexing character of the decision-making process for the U.S. I mean, the U.S. sort of supports the French after World War II. That's a doomed cause. The French are finally defeated at the NBN Fou in 1954. There's a Geneva conference and a decision taken that Vietnam will be reunified based on a national election. Then the U.S. forces, the U.S. government basically sabotages it because they, I think, believe Ho Chi Minh will actually win the election. And as a consequence, this kind of slow motion, low intensity conflict begins. First Eisenhower and then the Kennedy administration are saying, or the Pentagon is telling them, well, all we need is military advisors and we'll rout the enemy. We'll defeat the communists. And then that doesn't work. And I think Kennedy must have realized at a certain point, this isn't working. I mean, there's lots of talk that prior to his assassination in November 63, that perhaps Kennedy was considering a withdrawal, but he's assassinated. Johnson quickly uses Gulf of Tonkin, which is based on a lie, to send a huge hundreds of thousands of troops. But what you're saying is that in spite of this sending more troops, bombing North Vietnam, bombing big parts of South Vietnam, the political leaders actually weren't convinced that victory was coming. The Pentagon was telling them everything is going great, but they weren't really believing it. But they perpetrated the war because they didn't want to have an open clash with the military leadership. I mean, is that really kind of the essence of what you're saying? That's a very important part of it. It's not the whole, because we had a citizenry in this country, voters who had been told for years about this existential fight between communism and democracy, or read capitalism, because we told ourselves that we were leaders of the free world, but that included a lot of countries that were extreme examples of unfreedom. Saudi Arabia continues to be an example of that, for example, and is carrying on a genocidal war in Yemen with our sales of arms. You wouldn't call them an main capitalist country. It's a theocratic country. And yet, of course, their oil income is the fuel of the world energy, especially capitalism. So we we make a lot of money from arms sales there and dealing with the uh, military and so forth. Well, that's been true all over the world. And one correction I'd make when you said that Kennedy was told and Eisenhower had been told that advisors alone would win the war. As a matter of fact, when I worked on this study, which came to be known as the Pentagon Papers, the McNamara study of decision-making in the war, up, it ended in 1968 because they mistakenly thought the war was about to end in 1968. It had seven years to go. But when we started in 67, looking back, I discovered looking at the 61 period, which I was working on, that Kennedy had been told the opposite, that advisors would not win the war, in fact, would not avert defeat if he kept only advisors, even if he increased them, as he did. And yet, and they said he had to send combat troops there immediately if he was to avoid failure. And a little inscrutably, 
to me when I first looked at the records, Kennedy rejected the advice of nearly all of his advisors, military and civilian, that only combat troops would stem the tide there. That was his main decision, was to reject that. He did increase the advisors, and the question in my mind was, why, rather than getting out? At that point, it was not only the military that he was, even mainly probably the military that he was concerned about. He was worried that the Republican rallying cry earlier, that the Democrats had lost China to communists, supposedly, the Chinese nationalists, Chiang Kai-shek forces that we were supporting, fleeing to Taiwan in 1949, the communists controlling all of mainland China, that that was the fault of the Democrats. They were weak. And that led Harry Truman into a fight in Korea that he might well have avoided otherwise, but he didn't want to be said to be the president who had also lost Korea. And at the same time, he made the decision, and we don't lose Indochina on the border of China. Now, we didn't have China then. Neither did the French really right at the beginning. They had occupied it for almost 90 years, but the Japanese had put them into camps, actually, and declared them independent of France. They regarded that spring of 1945 as their independence moment. But when the Japanese then surrendered in August, Ho Chi Minh declared independence as a republic, and Bao Dai, the emperor that the Japanese had supported as a puppet, uh, abdicated and became just an ordinary citizen under Ho Chi Minh, at which point the French, the war just having ended, wanted to regain their control of their former colony, and we decided to help them. Now, I could say when I read the earliest parts of this decision-making study, the Pentagon Papers, which I did in 69, two years after the papers had begun, the research had begun, I realized that our support of the French was never legitimate in American terms. You know, we were supposedly anti-imperialist. The idea of supporting 80% of the costs and indeed twisting the arm of the French to continue the fight even after the French were ready to give up because we didn't want the sight of the, quote, West, uh, which we were supposedly the leaders, losing another part of Vietnam to communism. In other words, a domestic concern of votes, not at that point so much the military. To move ahead, though, at the point when Johnson, in order not to lose, had put as many as 100,000 troops in, and the military was calling now for probably at least 500,000 or a million. At that point, he was afraid that once American casualties had now started going up considerably, which was not true earlier, now very hard for him to cut losses without admitting that he had wasted American lives and he was ready to gamble another 100,000 and another and another, up to 550,000 before he was basically faced losing an election as a result of that. So it was domestic, the military were a large part of that and often remained so. But to move ahead in time, for example, Iraq, had the support of hardly any active military going in. They didn't think that was, they didn't see a cakewalk ahead. They did not see that it would be easy to control and occupy that country. But civilian leadership at George W. Bush and Richard Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld made that decision. And likewise, in war since then, it hasn't always been the military who put the pressure on. 
But domestic politics has always entered in the fear of being charged with losing a war. Right now, for example, Biden is biting the bullet on that one, is saying we've been there long enough, in this case, 20 years. We've been bombing Afghanistan for 20 years. And the American people are actually, I would say, basically ready to continue that bombing, but they don't want troops there anymore. And he's going against the military on this point and taking the troops out of Afghanistan. But he proposes to continue the bombing from outside Afghanistan. To come back now to the Pentagon Papers, I knew that was Nixon's plan in Vietnam, to take the troops out slowly, preferably all during his first term. In fact, he hoped to do it in his first year and failed at that. But he did get them out by early 73, the beginning of his second term, having promised that he would end the war with no intention of ending the war, but ending or reducing slowly and then ending American ground troop involvement casualties, but continuing the war in the air, as we have done for 20 years in Afghanistan. The public very little realized that he had this secret plan to continue the bombing permanently and definitely. I did know that from sources inside the White House who were critical of it. And I felt that gave me an obligation. I couldn't prove it with documents, but I to do what I could to show that four previous presidents had lied in a similar terms about what they were doing and why they were doing it, what the prospects were, what the costs would be. They lied about every aspect of it. And I thought that would suggest to the American people that the current president was doing the same, Richard Nixon. Actually, I failed at that without documents. And my documents I had mostly ended in 68. They didn't want to believe that President Nixon was lying when he said he wanted to end the war. They didn't see in that that he meant to continue the war indefinitely in the air. And they don't really, to this day, I think, have any answer in their minds as to why it did go on for six years after he got into office, and it would have gone on much longer if he had remained in office. But he was the first and only president now, so far, to have resigned facing impeachment, and the impeachment was to a large extent for crimes he had committed against me in particular, because he feared that I did have documents that would prove what I was saying, that the war was going to continue. It was not in the process of ending. It was not uh, about to end, and it could get larger, as did happen unhappily, even after I put out the Pentagon Papers. Let me jump in, Daniel, because this is so interesting, and we can sort of conclude this important interview in this vein, because the documents that you released to the New York Times really are not about Nixon. They're if the report, the study is concludes in 68. So that's Johnson. So Nixon goes to war against you. You could have faced like 120 years in prison. 115. 115. It would have been effectively a life sentence. Yes, we can agree on that. Yeah. So you're facing prison. They're trying to make an example out of you. You actually have a trial, and we'll talk about if we can, if we have time to really get to that trial too. But how and why did Nixon go to war against you, even though the documents, the Pentagon Papers, were showing that it was Johnson who lied and, and Kennedy who lied and, and Eisenhower? Yes, Nixon was the vice president of Eisenhower, but I've heard other interviews where you said he wasn't actually much mentioned. So let's just talk for our audience today. 
Why did Richard Nixon go to war against you and how it backfired such that it really ended the Nixon administration and thus facilitated the actual end of the war in Vietnam? I find that nearly all reporting in this 50th anniversary about the war in the Pentagon Papers is misguided in a number of respects or misleading, in particular about Nixon's policy, which I think isn't understood to this day. It's often described that he overreacted against me, since, as you say, the Pentagon Papers themselves didn't affect him at all. He was in the Eisenhower administration when this war was committed to, basically, in fear, our support of dictator No Dinh Siem in South Vietnam, and our rejection of the elections that were promised, nationwide elections that were promised in the Geneva Accords of 54. We rejected those and put in power someone who we could be sure would not carry them out because we were sure that the popular vote would go to Ho Chi Minh. So we opposed self-determination in a word, in its most basic form, in an election and democracy throughout the 50s and 60s. And uh, the notion that we support democracy in the third world, that is the former colonial world primarily, is a hoax. It's always been a fraud. We do support democracy in places where we're pretty sure the the outcome will be favorable to America, to quote our interests, that is business, corporations, trade, investment, whatever. We don't expect that to be true in the third world. We want very cheap labor and cheap resources. So we generally support unpopular governments that will carry out economic policies that favor American economic interests. That's what I learned. It's not the perception that I started with in the government. But anyway, In 1969, when I realized uh, by being told by insiders that Nixon had ambitious goals for keeping Thieu in office for eight years and for getting the North Vietnamese troops out of Vietnam by threatening nuclear war, goals that I knew I felt confident would not be achieved and would lead to a larger war, I decided to do what I could to shorten that war by releasing thousands of pages, 7,000 pages of the McNamara study, the Pentagon Papers, first to the Senate, and then when they didn't release them, as they had earlier promised, to the New York Times, which was enjoined for the first time in our history, prior restraint, an injunction against publishing further. I then gave them to the Washington Post. It was enjoined and eventually to 19 newspapers in all while the FBI was searching for me and my wife uh, when we were moving from house to house in Cambridge, actually. When the Supreme Court voided the injunctions on the ground that they violated the First Amendment, I was prosecuted for facing 12 felony counts, a possible 115 years in prison. The first prosecution, as unprecedented as the prior restraint, actually. And Also, although not really fully realized to this day, as unconstitutional as the injunction which was voided by the Supreme Court. But this issue of using the Espionage Act against whistleblowers has never been addressed by the Supreme Court and should be found unconstitutional also. My release came about when it was revealed by whistleblowing by others that Nixon had committed a number of domestic crimes against me, which in the words of my judge, offended a sense of justice, and the charges against me and Anthony Russo were dropped, with prejudice meaning they couldn't be tried again. 
to say, as nearly everyone does, that Nixon, quote, overreacted in what he did against me, which did bring him down eventually, and that it came down essentially to psychological traits of Nixon himself. He was paranoid and overreacted in doing what he did is to misunderstand what his policy was and what the threat was that a whistleblower posed to his secret policy. What he did was to try to get information on me that he could blackmail me with into silence so that I wouldn't put out the documents that he reasonably thought I might have about his threats, though I didn't have them on the whole. And what he did, he sent people to incapacitate me on the steps of the Capitol on May 3rd, 1972, at a point when he was about to escalate by mining Haiphong and was discussing that week, as we now know from the tapes, the use of nuclear weapons against North Vietnam in April of 1972 during the offensive. And I was on trial at that time, but he wanted me to shut up about what I might bring out in the trial or otherwise. And he'd earlier gone into my former psychoanalyst's office to get information to blackmail me with, information I wouldn't want out. Uh, he'd been listening to me by illegal wiretaps, warrantless wiretaps on which I was overheard, and lying to the court that those wiretaps existed. So all of these things, by the way, are now legal after 9-11. They've been essentially legalized, both in law and by practice, although they really are unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court hasn't addressed that. But at that time, they were very clearly illegal and impeachable, and he had to keep them silent, and that led him to commit more crimes of obstruction of justice, to bribe various people who carried out these crimes into silence and perjury in front of the grand jury. So, as John Dean put it to him, to Nixon, there was a cancer on the presidency. It was growing by all these crimes and the, the necessary perjury that went with them. Now, why was he doing all this self-destructive behavior? And the answer was, I think any president essentially would have done much the same in his position. And now they do it without such fear of impeachment after 9-11 as necessary to national security. But at that point, they still would have done it, I think, really because he was carrying out a policy that had to be kept secret. And that was very ambitious goals in Vietnam, which included keeping our puppet president of Vietnam, Nguyen Van Thieu, a general who had been elected only in really rigged elections. Really rigged elections do occur, and all the ones we presided over in Vietnam were of that nature, but uh, had no support, no legitimacy. But he had helped Nixon win election by doing what President Trump was accused of doing, rightly or wrongly, working with a foreign power as a candidate to win an election. And in this case, President Nixon did, in fact, persuade or induce, encourage President Hugh not to come to the negotiations that had been arranged by Lyndon Johnson with the Hanoi leadership in Paris. And had, uh, by announcing that, that the negotiations were not going to take place, he had prevented Humphrey very clearly at the time from winning the election in 1968. And as a result, Hugh said, insiders, including one who talked to me, 
I elected Nixon. And he elected him in means that would have gotten Nixon impeached if they'd ever come out, meaning he had blackmail on President Nixon. Don't let me be deposed as a deal with the communists or with the liberation negotiation, the nationalist forces. Don't have a coalition that doesn't include me or any coalition at all. Don't include them. Or I will reveal that you won election by impeachable means. And for that, some 20,000 Americans died. So 1968, the Paris peace talks are going on. They started earlier. And there was an opportunity possibly for a negotiated end of the war. And Nixon, then candidate for the Republican Party in the 1968 election, sends a message to the South Vietnamese leadership, don't settle, wait for us to become president. And if you don't settle, then you'll get a better deal. But as a consequence, the war in Vietnam does not end in 1968. It goes on for another, for Americans, at least until 1973. It wasn't really likely it would end in 68, despite the negotiations that were in view, because Johnson wasn't ready to make the deal at that point Mm. that would have done it. However, his vice president, who was now running for president, Hubert Humphrey, would have been more than happy to make that deal. And I am very confident the war would have ended not in 68, but in 69, early 69, probably, under Humphrey. It was, we were able to make that deal, but not under Johnson or Nixon. And neither of them were willing to allow a coalition government, which was critical to that. The NLF had to be given a role in the government. And uh, neither of them was ready to remove endless U.S. troop presence and violence to do that. Humphrey was, I believe, on a lot of evidence, that Jack Kennedy had been willing to do that, but Nixon or Johnson, no. And so, was shown then and now, is that essentially to keep office, and by the way, the military themselves wouldn't have had our military, the influence they did, were there not enough support for a basically imperial policy in Congress and in our public to confront any president with losing office if the military opposed him by saying, uh, you're giving up on a fight that is winnable that must be fought. These issues, by the way, are going to arise in connection with Taiwan very shortly in a cause, by the way, in which the Taiwanese, I would say, have a much better case for foreign support than South Vietnam ever did. Nevertheless, it really deserves the closest public attention, and it's not getting it at this point, and not to leave it just to our leaders or our military as to just what form that support should take or how far should it go. In my opinion, it should not go to the part of threatening initiating nuclear war against communist China under any circumstances. That would lead to the death by nuclear winter, and that's another whole subject here, but of more than a billion people in the world. And yet we are making that threat as we have for the last 70 years. It's been incredibly irresponsible. (laughs) There's really no words for it because humans never have faced the prospect or the obligation to be concerned with possibly ending most human life on Earth. I've said billions, but if it were war with Russia, uh, say over Ukraine or Syria or another, you're talking about a nuclear winter that would kill over 7 million people. Not everybody, but 
nearly everybody. What the Pentagon Papers show and the Afghan Papers, such have been revealed in the Washington Post a couple of years ago, our leaders do not deserve the trust in making wise decisions in that area when the alternative is the possibility of their losing office. Their willingness to gamble the lives of others secretly in order to keep office go far beyond what we imagine on the whole. And that's a truth that's painful, but we have to live with it and appropriately. And that means telling each other the truth about what we confront and finding out the truth to the extent possible what the government is doing because we can almost be sure they will not be being candid with us about the prospects they face. The possibility of their losing office or influence or power or program, and not just in this government, in any government essentially, leads to reckless gambles in reality that only whistleblowers can reveal because they will not reveal it voluntarily themselves. Indeed. And that's why, Daniel, you know, it's so important for our audience and for people around the world who care about the truth to demand the freedom for whistleblowers. We have, of course, Julian Assange uh, still languishing in prison. I know you've been a strong voice for him. You ended up not spending those 115 years in prison. That was a rare set of circumstances, but we need to free Julian Assange. Yes, and you know, there's been one bit of good news, and public opinion has had a critical role on it, and that is that just yesterday it was announced that Reality Winner had been released to a halfway house and possibly to home arrest. She shouldn't be under arrest at all, should not have been prosecuted, in my opinion, but she was bound to be under the pattern that's been established since my first prosecution for that. So that's a good step, though, just as it was good that Chelsea Manning was released after seven and a half years. It should have been no time or much sooner, but that's better than the 30 years she was facing. Ed Snowden should not have to be in lifetime exile, where his passport was taken away when he was en route to Latin America. He's ended up in Russia now for years. All these people did a very patriotic service in telling the public things they needed to know and were things that had wrongfully been withheld in the moment. In Snowden's case, about universal surveillance, which we're learning more about now this week with the evidence that Trump, the Trump's DOJ, was collecting phone data and email data on politicians and even their own officials and congressmen, as well as reporters. This is coming out this week and is being inspected. Why are they doing that? Again, because policies that should be public have been kept secret and they're afraid of, of whistleblowing and they want to stop it. So we've got to do what we can to preserve our First Amendment, and that requires stopping the abuse of the Espionage Act to use it as if it were a British-type official secrets act that criminalizes any release of information that some government official has stamped secret. That's unconstitutional, that use. But the Supreme Court has never addressed it, has shied away from taking up a case on it. And as of now, it is being used in that way. So Congress could change that, could amend the Espionage Act or rescind those parts of it. And that deserves public support. We're going to leave it right there. We were joined 
by Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel is one of the most important, well-known whistleblowers in American history. The author of The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. By the way, I've read the book and I used the book in political study with activists around the country. I really, really recommend everyone get The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Daniel is also the author of Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.